I love the Army. You just have this brotherhood that you can't find anywhere else. Since coming home from war, I've tried so many different things. I just remember thinking, like, it's over. After being forced to medically retire, Angie battled addiction to prescription medications, eventually losing her house and marriage. Then she found Wounded Warrior Project. And so I went online, I signed up, and I knew that Wounded Warrior Project was definitely my new community. One of the staff members, she put me in for peer mentor training. It was like for the first time someone recognized something good about me and thought that I had something to give back to someone else. Are you doing okay otherwise? I've kind of picked up woodworking with my grandfather, oh, yeah. so. I saw 3D stuff. All those activities gave me a new way to live without drugs, a new way to live without feeling like I'm broken. You can live a meaningful life after traumatic experiences. You wouldn't go into battle alone. You don't have to fight this alone. Visit woundedwarriorproject.org slash not alone. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Hi, I'm Brad Bannon, the host of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, my, I'm a, a national democratic strategist, a columnist for the Hill in Washington, DC, and a political analyst for talk radio news stations, KNX in Los Angeles and WGN in Chicago. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls uh, for progressive issue groups, Democrats, and labor unions. Uh, BannonCR.com is the sponsor of today's show. Uh, if you want to know more about me and my political polling company, or if you have any ideas or suggestions for Deadline DC, the best way to reach me is on Twitter. My Twitter handle, all one word, is Brad Bannon. Today, in the first half hour, our guest is uh, national security expert Cedric Layton, uh, who will discuss uh, the United States withdrawal from Afghanistan and other foreign policy issues. Then, in the second half hour, Edward Theogene of Generation Progress and our own Mark Grimaldi join me on the uh, progressive, the provocative progressive political panel to talk about the big political news of the week. But first, uh, let's listen to President Biden talk about his announced uh, withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan. How many thousands more Americans' daughters and sons? Are you willing to risk? How long would you have them stay? Already we have members of our military whose parents fought in Afghanistan 20 years ago. Would you send their children and their grandchildren as well? Would you send your own son or daughter? After 20 years, a trillion dollars spent training and equipping hundreds of thousands of Afghan national security and defense forces. 2,448 Americans killed, 20,722 more wounded, 
and untold thousands coming home with unseen trauma to their mental health. I will not send another generation of Americans to war in Afghanistan with no reasonable expectation of achieving a different outcome. The United States cannot afford to remain tethered to policies, creating a response to a world as it was 20 years ago. We need to meet the threats where they are today. Today, the terrorist threat has metastasized beyond Afghanistan. So, we are repositioning our resources and adapting our counterterrorism posture to meet the threats where they are now, significantly higher in South Asia, the Middle East, and Africa. But make no mistake, our military and intelligence leaders are confident they have the capabilities to protect the homeland and our interests from any resurgent terrorist challenge emerging or emanating from Afghanistan. That, of course, was President Biden talking about the withdrawal of troops from uh, U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Our guest in this segment is national security expert Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired. He is the founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates, a strategic risk and leadership consultancy serving global companies and organizations. He founded the company after serving in the U.S. Air Force for 26 years as an intelligence officer, attaining the rank of colonel. His Twitter handle is at Cedric Layton, C-E-D-R-I-C-L-A-I-G-H-T-O-N. And uh, his website is CedricLayton.com. Colonel Layton, welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. We always appreciate you being on the show. I always think we have some very interesting conversations. Uh, Let's start with Afghanistan. Uh, It seems to me that uh, President Biden made a very difficult decision that however painful it is, somebody finally needed to make after 20 years. With uh, U.S. troops withdrawing from Afghanistan, it seems to me it's the right thing to do. Uh, We'd been tied up there for a couple of decades now, uh, and it seemed to me we hadn't made any progress in bolstering the uh, Kabul government. Uh, So uh, what's your take on the president's decision? Well, Brad, thanks again for having me here. It's always a pleasure. Uh, The the thing with uh, President Biden's decision on Afghanistan, Brad, is that uh, I agree with you that it was the right thing to do. Now, the question then becomes, uh, you know, what one of execution? How do you go about doing this uh, without uh, losing some of the gains that we did achieve in Afghanistan, you know, some of which the president alluded to, such as uh, keeping the homeland safe from terrorist attacks emanating in Afghanistan, other things uh, such as women's rights, uh, the rights of uh, girls to go to school, uh, things like that are going to be a lot harder to uh, keep once the U.S. troop presence goes down to uh, zero. We're basically almost there. We have about 650 troops still left in in uh, and around Kabul, uh, basically to protect the embassy and the airport there. Uh, so with 
us leaving Afghanistan, a lot of those intangible things that uh, we have somewhat gotten used to are probably going to go away as far as Afghan society is concerned and and uh, the Afghan uh, military landscape. Uh, but the problem is, is one that the president uh, addressed, I think, directly, and that is uh, you know, the way that we did this, the types of tactics and uh, strategies that we employed in Afghanistan were ones that uh, would not really change the inevitable outcome. And that inevitable outcome is that the government in Afghanistan is going to have a very difficult time maintaining its hold on power. And it's also, uh, you know, at least appears at the moment to be inevitable that the Taliban are going to take over uh, at least large portions of the country. They already have done that, uh, at least nominally. And if they continue to do that, then it's going to be a very difficult thing for that government to hold on. Uh, you know, if you listen closely to the clip we played from the president, uh, he basically makes the case that we can still protect the United States from terrorism. Uh, but uh, it, as you said, it, the withdrawal uh, really doesn't, you know, I mean, help the situation in Afghanistan uh, at all. As you said, what, what do you think would ha you think? And I think many experts agree uh, that once uh the American troops are completely out of Afghanistan. The Taliban will eventually take over the country. And what do you think that's going to mean? It probably means bad things to the people of Afghanistan. You mentioned the fact uh, the rights of women and, uh, you know, young women being able to receive an, uh, an education. Uh, do you think uh, Afghanistan will become a terrorist threat again? Well, it's certainly possible. I think it's going to be a bit more difficult uh, for Afghan uh, groups in Afghanistan or using Afghanistan as a base to launch out of Afghanistan. Uh, you know, we, we know kind of what to look for there, even if we're not directly on the ground there. Uh, but I also think that, uh, you know, given that fact, uh, it's going to be uh, one of those areas where we have to be very careful that we don't lose sight of uh, of what's actually going on there and without you know having people on the ground there at least new, a, a number of people on the ground from an intelligence collection perspective it might be more difficult uh, to be able to ascertain intentions of groups like al-qaeda or isis uh, and especially the isis khorasan group which is the one that's primarily in afghanistan uh, if they intend to attack the united states uh, we might not have as much early warning as we would have had if we if we were still there but we have to make a decision you know do we do we go ahead and uh, you know move to other areas that are important for us from a national security standpoint or do we continue to stay in a place uh, where it becomes questionable whether or not there's going to be a threat emanating from there at least as far as our homeland is concerned so yeah. that's that's the big dilemma from that standpoint Okay. Our guest in this half hour is Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired uh, national security uh, uh, expert who uh, was uh, an intelligence officer in the U.S. Air Force uh, uh, for 26 years. Uh, we're going to go to break now So uh, for our radio audience, uh, but we are going to stay here for our, our audience, TV audience, so don't go anywhere. Uh, we'll be back with more of Deadline DC uh, and Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired, 
uh, when we get back from these messages, we'll talk uh, more about uh, American uh, national security uh, the uh, and other uh, foreign policy issues. So we'll be back right after this message. Okay, welcome back to Deadline C with Brad Bannon. Welcome back to our radio listeners. And a reminder to our radio listeners that if you'd like to uh, see Deadline DC uh, as well as listen to it, uh, you can watch us on Periscope TV at uh, periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. You can also see us on Facebook Live and on YouTube. Uh, our guest in this half hour is Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired, uh, who is here to talk about uh, foreign policy and national security issues uh, facing the United States and the world. Uh, Colonel Layton, last week, uh, there were reports from a new book by, I believe, two Washington Post reporters about uh, the uh, reaction of the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff, General Miley, uh, to the Capitol insurrection uh, and other hints that uh, President uh, Trump was not going to uh, go quietly uh, from the White House uh, without uh, fighting uh, with his every last breath. And the reality is he still telling people he's the duly elected president of the United States. Uh, but uh, General Miley, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, found these events very troubling. Why, why don't you talk about that, please? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, Brad, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs is actually, by law, the number one ranking military officer in the United States. So when somebody like General Milley uh, is chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, has reservations or concerns about the president of the United States, it has to be taken extremely seriously. Uh, and what these concerns were uh, would basically boil down to this. Uh, General Milley thought that uh, when he saw Trump's actions, Trump's rhetoric, uh, and the desire that uh, President Trump had to maintain uh, his position as president of the United States in spite of the election results, uh, General Milley saw over overtones of uh, the 1930s and specifically the 1930s in Germany. And what he was referring to specifically there was the way in which Adolf Hitler took over power in 1933. Uh, so General Milley, who's a student of history, uh, took a look at this, saw what Trump wanted to do uh, by involving the military in uh, you know, areas like putting down uh, the Black Lives Matter protesters and other protests that were going through the country over the summer of 2020. Uh, he saw that as being a very dangerous thing because the military does not get involved, the US military does not get involved in domestic disturbances. Uh, it, and what we're, we could have experienced here would have been the military getting involved and uh, possibly uh, shooting at uh, or trying to apprehend uh, Americans who were engaged in peaceful protests. Uh, that was unacceptable to General Milley and it's unacceptable to anybody who has you know, served in the military, studied the Constitution, and who knows what the limits of American military power are. We are not a domestic law enforcement entity. And the military is also uh, not an organization that is designed to repress the American people. It is 
instead a microcosm of America that is designed to protect American society from external uh, enemies and external adversaries. Uh, these uh, adversaries that President Trump uh, talked about definitely did not fit that criterion. And so when you look at uh, those things and then you look at uh, the way in which the events that led up to the January 6th interaction, uh, insurrection unfolded, uh, the, the big area here was that General Milley sought to keep the U.S. military out of the political situation. But he also knew that he had to make sure that the transition from President Trump to President Biden was a protected transition, that it could actually happen on January 20th uh, with the inauguration. Uh, so the things that General Milley did uh, led up to what came about as a somewhat peaceful transition on the 20th of January, certainly well went through January 6th, which as we all know, was not peaceful, but I think that woke up a lot of people in the military to the potential dangers of a coup instituted by uh, the sitting, then sitting president of the United States. Yeah, it, you know, I've, I found this uh, story about uh, General uh, Milley uh, significant for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is, uh, if you read history, uh, anytime you see the military concerned um, about a government, it's usually involved in pushing the coup against the established government. And here yes. you have a situation where uh, the our top uh, military uh, leader, uh, General Milley, uh, was concerned that one would happen and was determined not to get the military involved in it. Uh, the other thing I thought about, uh, it struck me, was uh, the general uh, to direct comparisons uh, between his concerns about President Trump's behavior uh, and the Nazi takeover in Germany in 1932, I guess it was. Uh, and I guess it's reassuring to know uh, that the top military leadership in this country uh, was so concerned about upholding holding the democratic process uh, instead, of, instead of letting it fall into a fascist-like uh, coup. So I, I guess uh, this is good news in, in a way. It absolutely is. And it shows the viability of not only some of our institutions, especially the military in this case, but also the people who make it up. Uh, and in this case, General Milley being the top officer in the U.S. military, uh, he performed exactly the way he needed to in order to protect our Constitution. OK, uh, one last topic before we close, I'd like to ask you, what is going on in Cuba there? There are anti-government protests. Uh, uh, people who are, uh, you know, who are uh, unhappy about economic conditions have been uh, protesting uh, the communist government. Uh, what's exactly is happening there? Well, I think this is one of the big things, Brad, where you see the failure of a government to handle the COVID-19 pandemic playing out in the streets. Uh, there have been other instances around the world where people have gone into the streets in Cuba. This is particularly noteworthy because these protests have never happened on this scale before. And uh, what they show is the uh, 
vision of the Cuban people uh, tends to be a more of a democratic, more of a uh, almost, uh, we couldn't say libertarian, but definitely a more democratic uh, vision of the future of the country, which is, of course, at odds with the Communist Party dictatorship that exists there right now. But when the people are chanting liberty in the streets of, Q of Havana, uh, what we're seeing is a reaction of, of trying to repress that movement. Uh, but it also looks as if there's a lot of support uh, here in the United States for that effort. And uh, I think we may see potentially some changes in Cuba as a result of that. Okay, uh, Colonel Layton, uh, thanks very much for joining us today. Always have loved to have you on. Uh, and I always feel that national security policy is the unwanted stepchild of American policymaking. We talk all the time about domestic uh, matters, but don't talk enough about national security issues, which is why I'd like to bring you uh, bring you aboard. Uh, thanks for joining us. That's all for this half hour of uh, Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. But we'll be back after this break with the provocative progressive political panel uh, with uh, Edward Theogene of Generation Progress and our own executive producer, Mark Bomaldi. We'll be right back after this message. Welcome back to NIDC with Brad Bannon. Uh, we, as usual, are going to have our provocative progressive political panel. Uh, but before we do that, uh, we're going to play this clip uh, from uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts about the need to deal with the problem of student loan debt. The consequence of student loan debt means there are lots of people who aren't moving out from their parents' homes. Lots of people who aren't buying their own homes. And one of the other things the data shows, lots of people who are not starting their own businesses. And all of those things hold back our economy. And I make that point because I'm sure there are lots of folks who are on this call tonight who don't have student loan debt. But here's the deal. Even if you don't have student loan debt, you will be helped by seeing student loan debt canceled because it will help our economy. This is one of those things that doesn't have to go through Congress. The authority is already there in law for the president and his team, the administration, the secretary of education to cancel out this student loan debt. And uh, President Obama used it to cancel some student loan debt. President Trump used it to cancel some student loan debt. I want to see President Biden use it. If he would cancel $50,000 in student loan debt, it would make an enormous difference in the lives of tens of millions of Americans and help build our entire nation um, a stronger future going forward. So as you know, I'm all in on this one. And if we could persuade the president, we could do this one fast. Okay, that was Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. Uh, this is uh, Deadline DC with Brad Bannon, who hails from Massachusetts. 
so I'm very proud uh, to have uh, Senator Warren uh, as my home state senator, uh, along with Senator Markey, who's also a great progressive. Uh, this half hour of Deadline DC is brought to you by my company, Bannon Communications Research, which polls for progressive issue groups, uh, labor unions, and Democrats. An analysis of Joe Biden's 2020 election victory portrays the opportunities that await the Democratic Party and the obstacles that confront the GOP down the line. The most encouraging sign for Democrats uh, in 2020 was the generational changing of the guard. The 2020 election was a was a uh, watershed moment in generational politics in American political history. For the first time in a presidential election, members of the silent generation, born between 1928-1945 and, and baby boomers born between 1946 and 1964, uh, cast fewer ballots than the younger group. Uh, that includes millennials uh, who were born between 1981 and 2002 and people in Generation X from 1965 to 1980. The rising power of millennials illustrates the importance of dealing with problems caused by de devastation of climate change and the overwhelming student loan debt. You can read the rest of this column and all my columns in the Hill at muckrack.com front slash Brad dash Bannon. Now it's time for the provocative progressive political panel. Our guest panelist today is Edward Theogene, advocacy director for Generation Progress. Uh, Edward is the uh, uh, Generation Progress is the youth engagement arm of American, the Center for American Progress. In this role, Edwith works to develop and lead efforts to translate the experiences of young adults into concrete actions that advance progressive policies and increase voter turnout. Joining Edwith on the panel is progressive political activist Mark Grimaldi. Mark has worked in several Democratic presidential campaigns, including the campaign of Joe Biden. Mark is also active in campaign finance reform and efforts to promote cancer research. Uh, his Twitter handle is Mark J. Grimaldi. That's M-A-R-K-J-G-R-I-M-A-L-D-I. Welcome, panel. Thanks for being together with me on Deadline DC today. Uh, Edward, uh, since I mentioned it, and it's the subject of my latest column in the Hill, why don't you talk about the importance of millennials and Generation X uh, to the to the progressive movement? Yeah, I mean, so Generation Progress, we actually represent uh, we represent millennials, and we also represent Gen Z. So I am what folks would call an elder millennial, or Gen Y, or like a geriatric millennial. Um, but 1984 is part of the group that sort of started this new generation. And um, what's really exciting about this recent election is that young people voted in such historic numbers. Um, there was an 11 point increase in the turnout of young people in the 2020 election. And this is the most that 
young people have voted in any election since the voting age was lowered about 50 years ago to 18. So young people really showed out in a particular time during the pandemic. We turned out as poll workers. We turned out as people to register and get people out to vote. We also were huge advocates to ensure that voting was safe and healthy for our communities. It was in the middle of the pandemic, right? So we turned out not only because we realized how important it is to vote, but because a lot of the issues that we as young people care about were on the table of discussion, right? So like we turned out because of climate change, we turned out because we didn't want to see any more police brutality. We turned out because we needed something to get done around gun violence prevention. So we really turned out in such big numbers um, across the country. Um, and that was really exciting to see. So young people are forced to, to sort of be reckoned with, or not reckoned with, actually supported and lifted up. <laughs> Okay, now I mentioned uh, in my uh, most recent Hill column that for the first time uh, there were that in every uh, recent presidential election we've had, uh, baby boomers and members of the silent generation were the largest group in the presidential electorate. In 2020, for the first time, there were more of the younger group, including uh, millennials and uh, Generation X and Generation Y in the electorate than the older uh, members. Uh, what impact do you think this is going to have on American politics, Edwith? I'm excited to see. I think right now, post the election, folks have gotten settled in. We've seen a lot of policy solutions come to to the forefront. And we basically are like, we turned out to vote. We want to see the things that we voted for happen. So I feel like there's a new relationship that is building between young people and our democracy. And there's going to be a new sense of uh, accountability. We've seen under the Trump administration, young people came out and protested and took to the streets. And now we are under, I guess, a, a friendlier, better administration. So the partnership and the relationship is going to look different. So I'm excited to see um, how young people continue to be centered in these important conversations. Like even as we talk about um, reconciliation and like different government packages and like what does it mean to make an economy work for all of us? Like I think the experiences of millennials, of Gen Z should definitely be at the forefront of that. Uh, Mark, uh, do you think uh, millennials will turn out in the midterm elections in 2022? Uh, because uh, traditionally, older voters um, are, you know, good, solid voters in midterm elections. Younger people, not so much. I think the trends look good for that being the case for an increased turnout in the midterm elections. Um, you also have issues that are on the table right now that are engaging young Americans like uh, student loan debt, canceling student loan debt, climate change, um, and also having a more just America for people of all different races and, and genders. So I think there that younger groups, and, and just to, to say to Edwith, don't feel i was born in 1982 so i don't even know if i'm like allowed to be included and in, i call myself a millennial but i'm like right at the tip you know so um 
but no, I, I do feel, I think it's also empowering, Brad, to, to hear those numbers that Edwith cited and to see once you have that power as a voter, as a voting group, you don't want to give it up. You don't want to cede it. So I think that it just drives people to get even more involved for the midterms. Obviously, you know, we'll have to see what the numbers look like, but I think it's very encouraging to see how people came out in such large numbers during a pandemic. Um, so, you know, things people have been able to get vaccinated, hopefully have a safer situation to vote um, coming up in the midterm elections. So um, I, I think that there's encouraging signs that we will continue to see an increase in voter turnout for younger generations. Okay. Can I also gonna, wait oh, uh, when we get back? Have, we're going to have to break now. Uh, we come back with more at Deadline DC. Uh, we're going to talk about student debt. Uh, and Millennials and Generation X and Generation Y uh, with the provocative progressive political panel. You think after all this time I learned how to say that correctly. (laughs) We'll be back right after these messages. Okay, welcome back to Denmark. Today, our guests on the provocative progressive political panel uh, are our own executive producer and political activist, Mark Grimaldi, and Edwith Theogene, who is director of advocacy at Generation Progress. Uh, Edwith, I'm going to ask you to talk about one of the uh, issues that Generation Progress is very active in, and that is the uh, dealing with uh, the overwhelming burden that many many millennials and Generation X and uh, Z uh, folks have uh, paying off their student loans. Uh, Are we going to get a significant movement from the Biden administration to deal with the student loan debt? I hope so. I mean, it seems like a ping pong game right now where the Biden administration was considering and thinking about what actions that they could take. And then they passed it over to Congress and Congress has debated a couple of different ideas right now. Um, And the urgency of it is just like really, really getting high because uh, the pause in student loan repayments are set to end sometime in September. So (laughs) a resolution, I hope, can can happen very soon. So it, I, I honestly don't know, is it going to be Biden that's going to be delivering the solution to this or is it going to be Congress? We know that this is definitely an urgent and important matter to young people. Even just the pause within this moment during the pandemic has been helpful. A lot of people have been able to get a certain kind of financial security that they've never had within their home life. They've been able to put money back into the economy. They've been able, a lot of the things that uh, we heard in that clip that Elizabeth Warren, Senator Warren, was discussing about how the student debt crisis is holding people back, you know, and the majority of people, like when you look at the data and the information of who um, is most impacted by the student debt crisis, they're folks who haven't even finished getting their degrees. They're people who've been impacted by predatory loans. They're people that have low paying uh, jobs. um, And, you know, you can contextualize that with uh, the gender wage gap, the racial wage gap, there's just like so many different things. So it's it's clearly really important and um, urgent that we do something about it. Uh, you know, Mark, you said one thing about the uh, uh, 
child tax credit that I think probably also applies to student loans, uh, it puts money back in the economy. Uh, and it seems to me uh, that's one thing that the child tax credit payments do is you're going to use it to purchase school supplies. Uh, and also, it seems to me that uh, many younger people have delayed making purchases like for homes, for example, because they're so burdened with student loans to Absolutely. pay off. Absolutely. And and it, there's studies showing, and I know Edwith is more of an expert on this than I am, but I, I've read incredible statistics about it outpacing people's rent payments as their number one um, bill each month. I mean, just think about how expensive that is for a family. Yet, you know, we're told without college, you're, never, you're not going to get a good job. You're not going to have a good future. So it's this catch-22 situation that once you do you know what you've been told your whole young life as you've been as you've been educated is you know go to college and once you do that and you start getting you know your a job you see like Edwith talked about also for women there, there's that wage gap so they're making even less money to pay back these loans so I I think you know uh, canceling student loan debt that number that Senator Warren brought up, $50,000, I think would stimulate the economy in ways that um, few other things could, especially with it, you know, potentially with the president being able to sign off on it and avoid having to go through Congress, um, I think would be extremely powerful and it would be something that would be incredible if he did it. So I'm really hoping that he does. I'm hoping that he listens to the people who voted for him, which as we've talked about are many young people. Um, and I think you would also see that money, Brad, like you said, go into the economy at a time when it's sorely needed. You know, the the stock market is not a direct correlation to the economy at all times, but you know, just today we, we've seen almost 800 points lost in the Dow Jones for um, fear of inflation. Um, there it would be a great time to inject the economy with um, a shot in the arm, like canceling the student loan debt. And, and uh, I think, you know, it would help a lot of young families. And although isn't this isn't the topic of the show, uh, and we will talk about this soon, I hope, uh, the other reason for the stock market losses today uh, was, besides uh, inflation, was the concern about the uh, uh, rising level of the uh, uh coronavirus especially the uh, uh the delta uh variant so um but i'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about that soon uh edwith let me ask you about uh, something else uh last week uh the uh, uh the senate majority leader uh chuck schumer announced that democrats had tentatively and i use the word tentatively um agreed on a package spending package of three and a half trillion dollars over 10 years uh for infrastructure uh now include in 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 addition to the usual things you think of uh infrastructure roads bridges uh transit systems uh it also includes uh expanding medicare uh for dental and eye vision coverage 
and a number of other things. Uh, I'm not quite sure they've worked out the details. There actually may be a vote on it, uh, but this is a package that uh, Democrats can only pass if uh, all 50 Democratic senators uh, agree on it uh, with the help of Vice President Harris and pass it through reconciliation. it struck me, if they can work out the details, uh, this is very significant. Uh, what's your view of it, Edwith? Um, I think it is really significant. I think I'm happy to see that they, in this infrastructure package, they've also applied a climate justice lens to it to try to figure out um, how they can do more around that. But there's always more money that you can invest you know, in making the world better and helping to address the climate crisis. So that was something that I saw that was good. Um, I am sort of like waiting to see if they can actually pass this and get all 50 Democrats like on it. I'm curious about what negotiations are going to be made, because I think there's also this race to try to get this passed by August recess, which is like very soon. And I think there's also like a resolution or some other things that are coming to the floor as well. So I'm, you know, sitting in like bated breath, like waiting to see what happens. (laughs) Yeah, we may know uh, later this week uh, uh, what happens. And uh, I think one of the hangups uh, from what I can see is actually on climate change. Uh, Senator Manchin from West Virginia, which is, you know, he's he's uh, uh, and uh a protector of fossil fuels. Uh, he, I read that uh, last week he made a comment that uh, he thinks, uh, and he's maybe right about this, that uh, the package is a danger uh, to the fossil fuel industry. Uh, and of course, the problem is if they do anything to uh, make it less uh, protective, if they do anything uh, to uh, appease Senator Manchin, uh, that may stop some progressive Democratic senators like Bernie Sanders uh, from supporting the package. Uh, so I guess my question to you, Edwith, is do you think this thing's going to work out and do you think it will end up, uh, you know, addressing climate change? And, you know, uh, we've had we're having flooding in Western Europe. Uh, There are droughts and wildfires in the western United States. We've had, uh, you know, record heat waves in the Arctic. Uh, There's very little good news on the climate change front these days. Uh, Do you think we're going to get something significant uh, that uh, Senator Sanders and Senator Manchin will work out of their differences and will get this big package? I hope so. I mean, like you talked about the record heat wave and I've been hit by that. I also have family from I'm from Florida. I can't boast amazing senators like you can, Brad, (laughs) from Massachusetts. But, uh, you know, even the fear and the scare of hurricane season and the fact that a lot of communities don't have the resources to be resilient in the face of this. So I'm hoping that progressives don't back down. But it seems like everyone keeps pandering to Manchin and giving him all this power. And I'm like, stop it. Like, why? Like, you know, so I'm just hoping I hope that an agreement can be can be met. But in that agreement, progressives don't lose ground from what is important for the people. 
Yeah, I mean, it seems to me I don't know what's going to be in the final package any more than anything else does. But uh, if this thing passes, it strikes me as very significant because and it's it's a big investment, three and a half trillion dollars over 10 years for dealing with some of the biggest problems facing our nation. That's it for Deadline DC today. Uh, I want to thank our guest, Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired. Uh, Edward Theogene, who is Director of Advocacy at Generation Progress, and our own executive producer, Mark Grimaldi. Uh, Don't Despair will be back next Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, and you can watch the podcast anytime on periscope.tv from slash Brad Bannon. Goodbye, and talk to you next week. We asked people in Michigan why they got the COVID-19 vaccine. Because I am pregnant and we wanted to protect our baby boy. I believe in the science. Protect my friends and help our community. And I'm ready to get back to somewhat normal. I want to hug my grandma again. COVID-19 vaccines are tested for safety and trusted by doctors. Find a vaccine near you at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Want a shot at winning big? Get your COVID-19 vaccine today. Those vaccinated within the last 24 hours are now eligible in a daily drawing of $50,000. Yesterday, someone won. Today, someone will win. And tomorrow, you could too. If you've been putting off getting your vaccine, make today the day. Don't miss out on entering for your shot to win. Must be 18 or over. Sweepstakes rules apply. Get eligibility details and enter at mishottowin.com. 